Please take your copies of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to continue with our study of redemption accomplished and applied tonight. And we've come now to the study of the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption. Let me begin by reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. The Bible says, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. These two words that begin this text are some of the most precious words in all of Scripture. And those words are our Father. Many of us instinctively address God this way. We start our prayers, Dear Heavenly Father, O Father, and we don't really even think about it. It's just second nature to us. But what I want us to do tonight is to take time to consider what it actually means to address God as our Father. What had to be accomplished in order for us to address God as our Father? And what blessings and privileges are expressed when we address God as Father? This is what we uncover when we study the doctrine of adoption. Now, for many of us, the doctrine of adoption is... Um, a bit unfamiliar. Perhaps I would, I would care to venture that most of you have probably never heard a, an entire lesson or an entire sermon on just the doctrine of adoption. And uh, so let me give you an introduction using the language of question 37 in our Baptist catechism. The question says, what is adoption? And the answer is, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto... Oh, I'm reading the, I'm reading, uh, the answer to sanctification. Question 37, what is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. That is um, how our catechism defines the doctrine of adoption. Sadly, though, the doctrine of adoption is often overlooked and not given a proper place in the study of redemption's application. If we're not careful, we'll lump adoption in with regeneration, or we'll lump adoption in with justification, and we'll fail to see it as an individual act of God's saving grace. Now, it is true that the doctrine of adoption has a very close relationship to regeneration and justification, but adoption is also unique in several important ways. And so it's right for us to understand adoption as its own act 
in the Ordo Salutis. So uh, what we're going to do is consider the doctrine of adoption under three headings. Under three headings. We'll look at adoption seen collectively, that is, in its relationship to the other acts in the Ordo Salutis. We'll look at adoption seen individually, that is, adoption seen all by itself as, a, as its own unique act in the Ordo Salutis. And then, lastly, we'll look at adoption seen biblically. And I'm going to give you a survey and just uh, turn you to several portions of Scripture where we see the doctrine of adoption. So let's begin looking at the doctrine of adoption seen collectively. Adoption is inseparable from regeneration and justification. So I just mentioned that some people lump it in, and the reason why they do is because there is a sense in which it's inseparable from regeneration and justification. Uh, remember that I told you that there is no such thing as a person who is regenerated but not justified. There is a doctrine, and actually... Um, <laughs> I've heard, I've talked to some friends, and I don't know if there are some circles where this doctrine is kind of making a, a resurgence in some fringe groups, but there is a doctrine. I know it's a doctrine believed by some primitive Baptists and some, some groups that have, um, if you don't know what a primitive Baptist is, don't worry. It's just one of the many Baskin-Robin flavors of different kinds of Baptists out there. Um, and, and groups that are influenced by primitive Baptists that have this view that God regenerates someone chronologically before he, he actually saves them. So they, they, they believe there's kind of three categories of people. There's people that are lost and dead in their sins. There's people that are saved. And then there's kind of like this middle group that they're regenerated and they've been awakened or however they want to word it, but they haven't yet been saved. They haven't yet been justified. So they're regenerated. They have a new heart. new. Um, I find no textual support whatsoever for that doctrine in all of the Word of God. The Bible is very clear. There's two categories of people. There's lost people and there's saved people. There's dead people and there's alive people. There's spiritually... Uh, um, separated from God, and then there's people that are spiritually united to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, do we make a logical distinction between regeneration and justification? Yes, we do. Uh, we, we, we see that logically, regeneration precedes faith, and we see logically faith is the instrument of our justification. Uh, however, we don't see a chronological distinction, meaning that in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, God regenerates, gives the gift of faith and repentance, and justifies a sinner in that selfsame moment. There's no chronological, that is a time distinction between those things. Well, so too is it with adoption. Adoption also is something that happens chronologically in that same instance, that same moment uh, in time. And there's no such thing as a person who is regenerated and justified that is not adopted. Okay, so someone who's born again is justified and adopted. Um, we see then, uh, the, the, there's another place, yet another place in the Ordo, and if I wanted to, to kind of, um, to kind of make, make this more clear, you know, I could kind of take, a, take something and do it like this, and then sanctification would kind of be part of that, right? And perseverance would almost kind of be a part of that because, the reason I say that is because effectual calling, regeneration, um, 
faith and repentance, there's a sense in which this is true of faith and repentance, justification and adoption are punctiliar, meaning they, they happen once and then they don't happen again. You're regenerated, you're effectually called one time. You're not effectually called over and over again. You're regenerated one time. Uh, now, faith and repentance, there's a sense in which it's punctiliar in that it has a beginning point. There's an there's initial faith and initial repentance, but faith and repentance are continual. They're growing. They're developing. Justification, you're justified one time, right? Uh, adoption, you're adopted one time. Sanctification, there's, again, there's a sense in which there's a definitive uh, sanctification, there's a, uh, there's a, a beginning of sanctification, but sanctification grows. Same with perseverance. When do you start persevering in the Christian life? The moment you're saved. You know, it's not like uh, well, I got saved and then I lived in the world for 20 years and then I, you know, then I got right with the Lord and rededicated myself and started to persevere. No, I mean, uh, God gives the gift of perseverance, the grace of perseverance, the moment he saves. Now, glorification is something uh, which we'll study in a few weeks that in no way, shape, or form has has um, happened to you, right? Um, if it did, I'd be very disappointed because you don't look very glorified to me. Uh, and I'd be disappointed when I look in the mirror in the morning, right? Um, so I say, I say all that to say that oftentimes, because there's all these things, and that's what systematic theology is. Systematic theology is breaking down... Uh, the doctrines of Scripture and understanding them in their specific points. And so there's all of these things that happen to you when God saves you. And uh, what, what this study really is, is it's studying all those different things that happen. And we study all those different things that happen because you see how big this thing of redemption is and it gives you all the more reason to praise and glorify the God that saved you. Uh, so in, there's a sense in which as we look at adoption seen collectively, adoption is inseparable from regeneration and justification. Secondly, just like justification, adoption is a judicial act. Remember I told you that justification was declarative. Meaning what? That justification is the bestowal of a status. Justification is not an actual change within us. If you begin to teach that justification is some sort of change within you, then what you do is you, you include an element of works in the basis or the merit upon which you are right before God. So it's important that we say, no, no. Yes, does God sanctify his people? Absolutely. Does God, is there a sense in which God does make his people personally and actually righteous and holy? Yes, he does. But that holiness is not the basis upon which you are right with God. Why? Because that holiness is imperfect. It's an imperfect holiness. As a Christian, you grow in holiness, but you still are a sinner. <laughs> and and that, that imperfect holiness in this life could never be the basis upon which God will accept us. So justification is the bestowal of the perfect righteousness of Christ. And it's upon that ground that we are accepted uh, before God. Uh, so adoption is, is like that. Adoption is God's declaration. Um, what, what does God declare in justification? Well, he declares that we're what? Righteous. Righteous. Well, in adoption, 
God declares that we are his children. It's a declaration that we are his children. So, just like justification, adoption is a judicial act. Thirdly, when God adopts men and women into his family, he gives them the nature and the disposition fitting for their new status as his children. Um, In other words, before he adopts them, he gives them a new heart and he gives them a right standing before him. God does not adopt people that hate him, nor does he adopt his enemies. No one is, is drug kicking and screaming into the family of God. It's not like God finds someone that, that is, is his arch enemy and says, you're going to be my child whether you like it or not. No, what he does first, and again, when I'm saying what he does first, I'm not speaking chronologically, I'm speaking logically. What he does first is he gives them a new heart so that he adopts someone who now has a heart that loves him. Right? John Murray says this, quote, God never has in his family those who are alien to its atmosphere and spirit and station. Before God adopts, he first causes those who hated him to love him and those who were his enemies to become his reconciled friends. Certainly then we can see how adoption has a strong relation with regeneration and justification. So there's... Part of me really understands why people lump it together. Uh, But there's also some very unique aspects of adoption, and it's this uniqueness that I I now want us to consider. So let's look at adoption seen individually. Adoption seen individually. What is the unique grandeur and glory of the doctrine of adoption? Well, adoption is the apex of divine grace and privilege. One brother said that the doctrine of adoption is the Mount Everest of gospel blessing. Now, at first, you might be tempted to ask, whoa, 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 what about justification? I thought justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. And I would say, indeed it is. And by labeling the doctrine of adoption as the apex of gospel blessing, I'm in no way diminishing the place of justification Remember that both justification and adoption are divine declarations. They're judicial acts. And in your justification, God declares that you're righteous before him. But in your adoption, God is declaring not only are you righteous before him, but you are his beloved child. You are the object of his sovereign care and protection. As his sons and daughters, you are the ones who receive his fatherly love and affection. That's what God is declaring as a reality when he adopts you into his family. What a blessing is encapsulated in the reality of adoption. In fact, John Murray argues that such a doctrine is unthinkable apart from divine revelation. Murray says something in his book basically like this. He says... um, He says, if God hadn't told us about adoption, we'd never believe in such a doctrine because it's just too wonderful for us to even think. Listen to Murray. He says this, it is only as there is the conjunction of the witness of revelation and the inward witness of the spirit in our hearts that we are able to scale this pinnacle of faith and say with filial confidence and love, Abba, Father. How could we sinful creatures ever become the beloved children of, 
of a holy God. That's what adoption is. Do you see, brothers and sisters, the magnitude of blessing that is contained in your adoption? Adoption concerns the fatherhood of God in relation to men. Now, this this must not be confused. First, it must not be confused with the fatherhood of God as it is in the relationship between the first and second persons of the Godhead. So when we talk about the fatherhood of God, we're not talking about, when we come to adoption, we're not talking about the way the three persons of the Trinity relate to one another. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In this sense, Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. The doctrine of adoption is also not to be confused with the universal fatherhood of God over all creation. There is a sense in which God is the father of all men, really all created things, believers and unbelievers alike, because he's the creator, he's the sustainer, and he's the upholder of all things. Acts 17 and verse 28 says, for in him we live and move and have our being, right? But when we speak about adoption, we're not talking about the universal fatherhood of God. We're talking about that peculiar relationship that is constituted by redemption. Sometimes you hear people say things like this, well, everyone is a child of God. And what they mean is that, well, um, doesn't matter how sinful and wicked people are, or doesn't matter uh, if they've received the Lord Jesus Christ, or it doesn't matter if they believe upon the gospel, everyone is a child of God right? Well, everyone is created by God. Everyone bears the image of God. And everyone is accountable to God. So in that sense, everyone has dignity and worth and value. But apart from the grace of adoption, natural man is not a child of God in the sense that he has no part in God's spiritual family. He's not in the family of God. You know, some people believe in justification by death. You know what I mean by that? You know, we, we believe in the doctrine of justification by faith, but, you know, you go to some funerals, and it's like all they had to do to go to heaven was die. Mm-hmm. Justification by death. Well, some people believe in adoption by birth. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're a human being, well, you're the child of God, and so you need to live like it. Well, what did Jesus say in John eight forty four to the self-righteous Pharisees? They said, we have Abraham for our father, right? And what did he say to them? He said, and I, I, I like the way the King James words it here. He says, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, Jesus was popping a hole in this lovey-dovey balloon that says we're all just the children of God. And he was saying, no, actually, if you're doing the lusts of the devil, that's your father. Mm-hmm. You're of your father the devil. Notice how Murray puts it. Oh, it's so so straightforward. Quote, to substitute the message of God's universal fatherhood for that which is constituted by redemption is to annul the gospel. You make the gospel of none effect. If we're all just the children of God, why did Jesus come to die on the cross for us? We're all just the children of God. If everything's hunky-dory, if everybody's just going to wind up going to heaven someday, why did God send his only begotten son to shed his blood? How does this 
So we're not all the children of God. And by the way, none of you in this sense were born the children of God. Ephesians says you were born the children of wrath, even as others. So how did you become children of God if you are a child of God? We find entrance to God's family through faith in our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you enter the family of God. So how do I become a son of God? How do I become a daughter of God? Well, you've got to meet the elder brother. And you've got to believe upon him and trust in him. Remember that, the, the, uh, that adoption, as defined by the Baptist Catechism, is an act of God's free grace. That's how the Baptist Catechism defines adoption. That means that this relationship did not come to us because of our own worth and merit. This relationship did not come to us because we applied for it and we were on the waiting list and then we got a call and then, we, you know, it's like joining a fraternity and then we, you know, we went and did an interview and then we were hazed into it and then we got our, our patches, right? That's not how we became members of the family of God. We did not become the children of God because we earned it or deserved it, but because God is a loving and gracious father. Sonship comes not through being born, but through being born again. Amen. Why do you need a second birth? Well, because your first one didn't work out so well. Mm-hmm. And this sonship comes with all the blessings and privileges of having the one true living God as our heavenly Father. To see those blessings and privileges, let us move on to our third heading, and I want to show you adoption seen biblically. So turn with me to a few portions of Scripture. The first, uh, I think I have four of them here. The first I want to show you is John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. John 1, verses 12 through 13. Notice what the Bible says. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 12 illustrates the proper ordo in the ordo, uh, the, the order in the ordo salutis. Do you see it? As many as what? Received him. So you receive, when do you receive him? You receive him in regeneration and in faith and repentance. You receive him and then you become his son. And as many as receive him. That means uh, everyone who's regenerated and justified receives him and is adopted. We, we believe on his name and then we are adopted into his family. Notice also that we don't become the children of God by our own power, but by a power that is given to us. The, the three knots of verse 13 obliterate any doctrine of man's natural ability to come to God on his own. Notice he says, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. If you take out those not statements, what you find there is say, how do we become the sons of God? Who are born of God. It's God who, who adopts us. It's God who births us again. Salvation is the work of a sovereign God. Those who are adopted are not the children of God because of their natural birth, that's born of blood, nor because of their natural ability, that's the will of the flesh, nor because of their supposed free will, that's the will of man. I mean, how, how much more clear could the Bible state it than that right there? John 1, chapter 
or verses 12 through 13. Those who are adopted are the children of God because they've been born again, and it is God, not man, who is sovereign over regeneration, the gift of faith and repentance, and justification. Well, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. The Bible says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father! Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Verses 4 and 5 here in Galatians chapter 4, we see one of the central truths taught in this whole study of redemption accomplished and applied, and that is this. Do you see how in verse 4 and 5, Paul is there teaching that the application of redemption, all of the blessings of redemption, are based upon the accomplishment of redemption by Jesus Christ. As the Holy Spirit applies redemption in time, he's applying what Jesus Christ accomplished in his person and work as our Savior. Verses 6 and 7 then show us that when God adopts us, he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell us. And the ministry of the Spirit is what enables us to cry out to God as our Father. So even, even though we're talking about adoption, which we typically think of adoption at, at, at primarily, and we should, as our relationship to God the Father, do you see how even in adoption, the Son and the Holy Spirit are, are absolutely necessary? Because we enter the family through faith in the Son, and we, we come to inherit or realize, or, or I, I'm looking for a word here, um, uh, we, we come to really embrace our sonship through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit within me that reminds me and ministers to me and says, you're a son of God. You're a child of God. Helps me to cry, Abba, Father. Notice in verse 7 that sonship entails all the blessings of being an heir of God through Christ. He says, if you're a son, then you're an heir. You know, uh, I don't have a whole lot. In fact, my um, my father was so poor, he used to tell me that that if he dies uh, and somebody comes asking me if I'm his son, tell him I don't know who he is because I'm not going to inherit money. I'll just inherit debt, you know. Uh, and I, I don't have a whole lot, but, you know, all that, I, all that I do have, all of my earthly possessions, if God were to take me, would, would go to my heir, my son, right? Well, that's what he's saying here. He's saying that if you're a son of God, then you're an heir of all heavenly blessings. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Just two pages over if you're already in Galatians 4. One or two pages over. Ephesians 1. Let me read verses 2 through 6. Now, Ephesians chapter 1 is a go-to passage for the doctrine of election, right? In, you know, where, where the Bible says God chose us before the foundations of the world. However, we often forget that adoption is also mentioned right here in these verses. So uh, let me read verses 2 through 6. And I want you to specifically... Be on the lookout for adoption. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. The text teaches us that our adoption was the divine purpose for our election. Why did God elect us and call us and regenerate us and justify us? Why did he do that? So that he could adopt us as his own children. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to be his beloved children. Isn't that what a father really wants from his own children? You just want them to love you as their father. What were we elected to? We were elected to be adopted as sons by Jesus Christ. By the way, this doesn't mean that Jesus is our father. When it says we were uh, uh, elected to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ, it means that, that his work as redeemer is what enables the father to adopt us. Had Christ not died for us to save us, the father could have never adopted us. Murray includes a detailed explanation in his book to prove that it is specifically God the Father as the first person of the Godhead and not all three persons of the Godhead that, that we look to as Father. I, I, I'm not really going to get into that because I think it's rather obvious when we talk about our Heavenly Father. We, we understand that to be the, referring to the first person of the Godhead. But it's just interesting to see how really all three persons of the Trinity are so intimately connected here. Last portion of scripture I want to show you is 1 John, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 John 3 and verse 1. First John 3, 1. The Bible says, Behold. Most all verses in the Bible that begin with behold are either really good or really bad. Okay, so anytime you see behold, all verses are really good in the Bible, but the content He's either about to say something really glorious or really uh, really stern about the wickedness of man. Well, this is one of those really good ones. Mm-hmm. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Amen. Wow. Adoption, like all aspects of redemption. Do you remember way back when I began teaching this series, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, I, I think I spent if not a whole lecture, a long uh, section of a lecture showing you that redemption flows from the love of God, the eternal, overwhelming, immense. It's not reckless. It's on purpose. That's right. The love of God that was bestowed upon us in Christ. And it is this love that, that God has bestowed upon us that enables us to be called the sons of God. Notice adoption is a calling. We're called the sons of God. It's really, this verse, it's as if John is just marveling at this truth. I love what what John Murray says. John Murray says in in his book, he says, talking about 1 John 3, 1, he says, quote, John could not get over it and he never will. Eternity will not exhaust its marvel. I think what Murray's saying is true. Even in heaven, we're we're going to be in glory and we're going to be saying to one another, behold, What love, what grace, what glory that we should be called the children of God. Unworthy sinners, recipients of divine love, and made into the very sons and daughters of God. 
Well, this is the doctrine of adoption. And I'm going to close with five practical applications for this doctrine. What difference does it make to know God as Father? How does knowing God as your Father, how does the reality of our being sons and daughters of God affect the way we live our lives? And might I say this, uh, if these practical applications are lacking in your life, then don't be so assured that you are indeed a son or daughter of God. So what are these five practical applications? And let me give a disclaimer. I am stealing these from Pastor Derek Reed of RBC Louisville, mainly because I, I don't think I could say them better, and because he just so wonderfully alliterated them, and you know I'm just a sucker for good alliteration. So let me give them to you. I stole the headings. The content is, is my own. Number one, the doctrine of adoption. Or let me, let me put it this way. I don't want to just talk about the doctrine of adoption. Let's make it personal. Your adoption as sons and daughters of God, number one, promotes a life of praise. Promotes a life of praise. The God that we worship. Think about this. I mean, I'm, I'm saying very simple things. None of this is deep truth. Very simple things. And sometimes the simple things, we, oh, we, we, we overlook them. But think, stop and think about this. The God that we worship is our Heavenly Father. We know Him. We know Him. And He knows us in a deep, intimate way. There are no human beings alive on the planet that John knows more than his mama and me. That's who we worship. We worship a God who relates to us as our Heavenly Father. And how much sweeter does this make our worship? It would be pretty hard to come to church every Sunday and sing and pray and preach to and about a God who was distant and far off. We don't know Him. We don't know anything about Him. How could we worship such a God? No, but our God has come so near to us that he relates to us as our Father. So your adoption, if you are a child of God, it promotes within you a life of praise. Secondly, it promotes a life of peace. Do you ever just wish sometimes that you could go back to being a kid? Life was simple then. Nothing to worry about. Why? And I know this isn't true for all of us because sin has ruined many families. But in many families, the reason why this is, why childhood is peaceful, is because your father took care of you. He provided everything you needed for life. Edsel doesn't worry about what he's going to eat or what clothes he's going to wear in the morning. John doesn't worry about how he's going to pay the electric bill. They have fathers that, that think about these things and take care of these things. But, brothers and sisters, listen to this. Jesus tells us that as the children of God, we can experience this same peace. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Listen, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You have a heavenly Father that provides for you, that that protects you, that supplies everything you'll need. One of my prayers that I pray for myself is, is, Lord, help me because I don't always think this way, but help me to think and to know and to believe if I need it, you'll give it to me. If you don't give it to me, I don't need it. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know he holds my hand. If you are a son or a daughter of God, you have a life of peace. And, and that doesn't mean that you know, there's just no worries, there's no turmoil, there's no turbulence, but overall your life is characterized by peace. And if that's not a description of your life, if your life is actually characterized by chaos and, and, and turmoil and, and disaster, then don't think that you're a son or daughter of God because that's not the way your heavenly father cares for his children. Fourthly, it promotes a life of prayer. Promotes a life of prayer. Because we are the sons of God, we have bold access to his throne of grace. Isn't it glorious that you don't have to schedule a time to speak with him? And he doesn't limit the time that he gives you? You don't have to send him an email and say, Hey God, I really need to talk to you. Could you spare 15 minutes next Tuesday between the hours of 4 and 7? No, you have bold access. There was a story one time about a journalist who really wanted to talk with the president of the United States. And so he goes in the front door of the White House and he's trying to get to the Oval Office, but he's turned away. You know, the president can't see you right now. You have to make a, you have to make a meeting, make an appointment, and so on and so forth. So this journalist is kind of disappointed and he, he's walking with his head drooped down and he's walking down Pennsylvania Avenue and he sees this little boy. And this little boy says to him, Mr. White, why are you so sad? And he says, well, I'm a journalist, and I tried, to, I tried to meet with the president, and I was unsuccessful. And the little boy says, follow me. Come with me. And the little boy takes the journalist by the hand, and he takes him around to the back of the White House, and he takes him in the back door, and he takes him into the Oval Office, and he says, Dad, there's someone who wants to talk to you. I, I don't think that's a, a, a real story. I don't, I don't know. Maybe it is. But the point is certainly true. The president is one of the most uh, unaccessible men on the planet. But he is accessible to his own children. Well, there's someone more unaccessible than the president, and that's God. 
sinners have no right to approach God. Because God does not look upon wickedness. But he always is ready. Not only is he ready, he delights. He is pleased to hear from his children. You can rush in. You know, uh, I, I talked about it earlier with John. Um, there would be other people that if I was in my study trying to prepare and they just bolted into my study, I might be a little upset with them. But even though it inconveniences me, I don't think I've ever been upset when John comes into my study because he's my son and I love him and I love to hear from him and I, I love to know that he desires my presence. So does your sonship or daughtership, does it promote a life of prayer within you? Do you have this reality that I have bold access no matter where I am, no matter what time it is, I have bold access. I can approach God. Well, fifthly and finally, your adoption as a son or daughter of God promotes a life of promise. Promotes a life of promise. Because of adoption, we are heirs to the promises of God. Heaven is our home. He will receive us unto himself. Christ is our elder brother. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Once you get into the family of God, nothing can take you out because nothing can separate you from the love of your heavenly father. You are an inheritor of the promises of God. You are a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. I I, I mean, how do we even begin to think about such a, a truth? But that's what the Bible says. You know, God only had one natural son. The rest of us are adopted, right? And the Bible tells me that, that just as God sustained Jesus during his earthly ministry, just as he raised him from the grave, just as he seated him in heavenly places, so too will he uphold and sustain me and I will die, but he will bring me out of the grave and he will lift me up to be with Christ forever. In fact, Ephesians says... Huh, that there's a sense in which we're already seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He's, he's given us the fullness of heavenly inheritance. All because we are adopted as his sons and daughters. Do you see how wonderful the truth of adoption is? Do you see why I wanted us to study it as an individual act in the Ordo Salutis? Uh, it really, I mean, it really is one of the most simple but yet one of the most profound doctrines of salvation. It's, it's one of the most overlooked, yet it's one of the most precious. So I hope that our time tonight has encouraged your heart, and I hope that you have been reminded and, and caused to think afresh and anew about the fact that you are a child of the Most High God.